HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. Welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Brian Ashcraft, who is a senior writer for the video gaming site Kotaku and a columnist for the Japan Times. And he is the author of six fascinating books, including the Japanese Sake Bible, Japanese Whiskey, Japanese Tattoos, and Japanese Schoolgirl Confidential, How Teenage Girls Made a Nation Cool. Brian has lived in Osaka since 2001. Throughout the two decades, he has insightfully observed and reported the uniqueness of Japanese culture to the world in English. So today we'll discuss how Brian ended up becoming a prolific writer and journalist specializing in Japanese culture, his insight into various aspects of Japanese culture, including sake, whiskey, tattoos, and schoolgirls, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's start a conversation with Brian Ashcraft. Hello, Brian. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So first of all, uh, where are you from? And what did you eat when you grew up? Uh, I'm a native Texan, so I grew up in in Dallas, and as a kid, I ate a lot of Texas barbecue, and I ate a lot of Tex-Mex, <laughs> and a lot of Whataburger, <laughs> and I drank a lot of Dr. Pepper, and ate a lot of pecan pie. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't eat, to be honest, I didn't eat, I, I didn't eat much fish as a kid, and that was because my mom didn't like fish, uh, but ever, whenever we would eat fish, uh, we would eat I'd usually maybe eat like catfish and it'd be fried. And I know in Japan, people don't usually eat catfish, but um, that's that's what I grew up eating. Also a lot of cereal. Yeah. I, I like cereal. <laughs> I it could cereal. be more American than that. That's the I ultimate. <laughs> I know. Right. So I have to discover how you got into to Japanese food too. But uh, Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, so that, that's that's a interest. I mean, it's interesting that you start off with uh, like you know what what you ate as uh, somebody ate as a kid because I think that's a super uh, insightful uh, way to kind of dig into a person's background. But um, uh, I, yeah. I had I had Japanese food maybe for the first time when I was in um, maybe second grade, and. Mm. Uh, there was a, a kid in our class who had moved from Japan. And so the teacher decided that we should learn about Japan. So we spent like a week learning about traditional Japanese things. And then after that, uh, we went to a Japanese restaurant. Hmm. And wow. 
Yeah, it was it was pretty great. I mean, it's better than being in school. So, so, um, um, so we went there, and uh, I just remember having uh, a miso soup for the first time, and just really being um, impressed. You know, really being uh, I'd, I'd never had really had any had had anything like that at that point, um, and that really made um, that that put Japan you know, as, as a, as an entity, uh, on the map inside my brain in a big way. It, it did make quite an impression in, uh, on me as a kid. Wow. Well, and then two things like your teacher was amazing because, <clears throat> excuse me, usually, you know, kids coming, new kids come into school and right. it's introduced that culture for a week and then take them to, uh, actual restaurant is just amazing teacher and then just the brain of kids at that age absorbs everything especially about food experience and uh the second thing is really important thing is you like the miso soup which is kind of elusive and mm-hmm. people don't understand like what is umami especially kids i guess mm-hmm. and it's like a you know it's like clear looking but you stir it it gets cloudy like with a <laughs> <Right>. weird drink <laughs> so yeah, yeah impressive I mean, it just the whole it blew me away. And the thing that I just remember also at the restaurant, the the people at the the restaurant has since sadly closed. But um, they they the chops they you know all the all the kids got chopsticks. But what the people at the restaurant did is they took the paper the chopsticks you know comes in and they rolled it up, and then they like uh, at the end of it they kind of like affixed it with a rubber band to make them into pinchers. You know, mm. uh, so little kids could use the chopsticks. And I remember after we ate and we went home, like I took those, I mean, these are disposable chopsticks, but I, I took them home and I had them at home for like the longest time. <laughs> <laughs> so. Wow. Impressive. So that was a bridge for you to Japan. Yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, I grew up in the eighties. So, uh, you know, I had like a Nintendo entertainment system and, uh, you know, a fair chunk of uh, the toys that I played with as a kid were from Japan. So um, uh, that was also, uh, you know, a big part of my life. But one of our neighbors was a flight attendant and she flew DFW to uh, Narita Airport. And uh, she was always bringing back snacks and stuff from Japan, and um, uh, which I loved. And I remember once she brought back three cans of uh, soft drinks. So she brought back a can of Coke and a can of Diet Coke and a can of Sprite. But I don't know if you remember, like in the you know the 80s and early 90s, uh, uh, soft drink cans in Japan they were, they were kind of like cylindrical and tall, hmm. uh, and not like fat and squat like American soft drink cans were. Right. <laughs> and it, that just blew my that blew my mind because I was like, wow, they have like Coke, but the cans are different, and I just. <laughs> was amazed by that so wow yeah i think uh, you have a very sharp eyes to something new and fresh so very impressive and uh but i heard that you have lived in japan since 2001 but also you worked in hollywood before you came to japan right so how did did. (laughs) getting to japanese like you know what brought you to japan so that's that's a yeah so when i was in uh I guess when I was in high school, I started going out to Los Angeles uh, every summer to intern in the movie business. And by the time I was 18, I was interning at a, a, distrib- a movie distribution company that was headed up by Quentin Tarantino. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, I, I was, you know, this was right after he, he'd finished Pulp Fiction and he had just done From Dust till dawn and he was doing this follow-up to Pulp Fiction and so that first summer that I went out he was filming Jackie Brown so you know I would go to the set and you know just get in people's way and watch them shoot the movie but that summer that summer that was 1997 the Japan Foundation was sponsoring a bunch of movies through the American Cinematheque in Los Angeles and they had a series that was called The Outlaw Masters of Japan. And uh, they were showing a bunch of really great movies. And um, uh, because of, through Tarantino, through Quentin, uh, 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 Kenji Fukasaku, the great movie director, uh, 
was in, I, I guess, my, my boss at the distribution company was kind of showing him around or just kind of, I guess, uh, uh, you know, h- hanging out with him, which meant that I was hanging out with him, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, which was kind of nuts when I think about it. So they would have like, they'd have these events and, you know, Fukusaku would be at a table and Sonny Chiba would be at a table and my boss would be at a table and I would be at the table with their translator, which I think about it like, that's just crazy. I'm just this like punk kid um, <laughs> hanging, hanging out with like, you know, some of the most famous people in Japanese cinema. And I didn't speak any Japanese at that time, uh, but I was well-versed on his films. And so I had all these obsessively particular questions I wanted to ask him about his movies. And he he was very obliging, but I think he wanted to, he was more interested in talking sumo with my boss. But but, (laughs) um, yeah, and so that, that was that summer. And my boss had actually uh, gone to Japan to, or I guess come to Japan to um, try to get the rights to a Yakuza movie and a Kaiju movie. And he, he couldn't get them, but he had a great time in Japan. So I kind of figured like, hey, I'll just, you know, uh, after I graduate, I'll go to Japan for a little bit. A little bit turned a little longer. Uh, I met my wife and then that turned until 20 years. So, I mean, um, uh, um, uh, yeah, it was uh, not not exactly the 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 route I was uh, intending, but um, it, it was just a very interesting time and it was a very interesting experience, experience mm. for me. And th- the mm. funny thing about that was, uh, you know, I was in, in the movie business, but what I was actually tasked with doing was helping on a book. And so uh, I learned a lot about uh, book production, you know, how to go and do interviews with people, how to, you know, structure a book. And uh, I, I had to do a bunch of research for it as well. And so even though I went out to L.A. thinking like, oh, one day I'll work in the movie business, I actually learned more about like the book business and learned mm. uh, more about how to put together a book. And those skills ended up becoming uh, helpful when I started doing my own books. Mm. Interesting. So so then uh, how did you end up being in Japan? Oh, so I just after I graduated, I just like I'll just go to Japan and it just turned in longer. And then I, you know, met my wife and I ended up staying and. Um, then I started, I was, you know, I was, uh, uh, knocking about for a bit and I started getting some, uh, uh, writing jobs through, um, uh, a friend of mine in Texas. One of his friends was working at Wired Magazine. And so then, uh, I became a contributing edit, uh, editor there and, uh, did stuff, uh, for Wired Magazine for a fair bit, wrote about all sorts of stuff, um, you know, like digital filmmaking, uh, technology that like teens in Japan were in, but also, uh, I did a big piece on absinthe, which at that time, uh, was illegal in the United States. And that article helped absinthe become legal in the United States. Uh, and then I started working for Kotaku and mm. that's, that's, you know, time has marched on. So we're now at 2021. So. Right. Okay. Um, so you're, um, um, you know, you married to a woman uh, from Japan and then you had a job. So, but mm-hmm. this is some, something that you could have probably have moved to back to the U.S., right? But what keeps you in Japan? Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, um, uh, you know, and especially in the early years, it was really, really hard. Uh, we, we had our first son when we were pretty young and, 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 uh, money was tight and those years were like really, really, uh, tough. Um, th- thankfully things are better now, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't easy. And whenever you move, I'm sh- sure, you, you know, you're, you're acutely aware of this as well as I mean, when you move to another country, everything then becomes much more complicated, you know, like like basic stuff that that uh, you can do in your own country. It just becomes because of language and culture and all these different things. It just becomes harder. Um, but I really um, was in. There's a lot of interesting subjects that that presented themselves and things that I wanted to learn about and things that I wanted to uh, explore further. And so, you know, I started. Uh, doing a lot of writing here. And I, you know, ever since I was like in junior high school, I wanted to write. And so, uh, and there was just, there has, has often seemed like there's just an endless amount of topics of things to cover in Japan. So, 
uh, in that regards, it's been um, uh, a really good experience for me. But yeah, mm. it was it was hard. I mean, without a doubt, there's, um, uh, you know, moving to a new country uh, uh, and then uh, obviously working in it, it, it's not it's not easy. So uh, I always have immense respect when I see people coming to the U.S. or people moving to the other countries to work, because I know that there's uh, a lot of inherent challenges that present themselves as part of that move. And so anyone who does that always has my immense uh, respect. Mm, right. But there is the word curiosity, right? That's life energy. So including myself, like, what if I just leave this country? I would regret forever. <laughs> that uh, kind of mindset. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, I've spent so much time in Japan. I mean, I, almost half my life is my entire adult life. And, you know, uh, uh, half of my life um, has been in here. Um, but I'm still like very, very interested in the U.S. I'm very, very interested in American culture. I love going back there. I love uh, stuff in Texas. I mean, when I was a kid growing up there, I'd always felt kind of um, – I remember at one point like a teacher told us, said, don't speak with a strong Texas accent. Because it, yeah, she said like if you do, and if you go up to like New York, she said people will think that you're stupid, and it it really wow. kind of yeah, really kind of cut through me. And so, uh, you know, maybe at that point, I I did everything that I could to to uh, 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 not have a a pronounced accent or something like that, which is a shame actually. But um, um, yeah, I mean. It, so growing up in Texas, I had always had kind of like my eye elsewhere. It's like, I want to learn about France. I want to learn about Japan. I want to learn about the UK. I want to learn about all these different places. Uh, but now after I've been in Japan for two decades, it's like whenever I hear like Willie Nelson songs, something stirs deep inside of my soul. And it's just, uh, uh, you know, I, I love going back to, to the States and I love going back to Texas. It's really interesting. Mm. Wow. Okay. Um, so, so now you have published multiple books about a wide range of topics, uh, ranging, ranging from Japanese sake to school goals. So, you know, out of those based on your curiosity, um, what's the common thread among the different themes of the books? Yeah. So, uh, I think, so this, the, my most recent book, the Japanese sake Bible, that's, I guess, my sixth book. And so I've done, I did a book on arcades, I did a book on a cosplay, I did a schoolgirl book, I did a book on, uh, you know, tattoos and Japanese whiskey and sake. Um, these all seem like just wildly different topics, but they're actually, um, uh, the thing that kind of links them all is that they all have some sort of like connection or interplay or dialogue uh, with the U.S., there's a, a connection there. There's some sort of uh, cultural exchange, either uh, from Japan to the U.S. or uh, from the U.S. to Japan. And um, and it wouldn't seem that way. You know, you you think like, well, you know, schoolgirls, what does that have to do with like, you know, the U.S.? Well, I mean, like, well, one of the people that popularized the 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 sailor the sailor outfit, which is like the kind of the default. Uh, you know, one of the default uniforms here was an American woman uh, who is, uh, you know, living in Japan. And so, um, uh, and then, you know, for sake, I mean, like um, a, a lot of the uh, most, uh, the, the biggest innovations in sake were done in Hawaii uh, during the 20th century. I mean, by biggest in, uh, innovations during the 20th century were done in Hawaii. Um you know, whiskey was first brought to Japan by Americans. So um, the the most important tattooers, uh, two of the most important American tattooers, Sailor Jerry and Ed Hardy, were influenced by Japanese tattooing, Japanese art. So for me, that's very interesting, that kind of exchange, mm -hmm. um, um, that sort of dialogue. So, you know, when I was saying, you know, as a kid, like, you know, I saw like Coke cans from Japan, they were different you know um and then uh and then when i had japanese food that was completely different um mm. so for me that kind of that that sort of exchange is interesting so there are a lot of topics that kind of present themselves and stuff that i think like oh i could do a book on this but if that kind of dialogue isn't really there i i don't feel as though it's something for me personally 
to do to cover. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not gatekeeping. Anyone can write about whatever they like. But for me personally, uh, there isn't that kind of uh, kernel to really kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, explore further. And um, uh, I'm just fascinated with the uh, relationship between the U.S. and Japan. It's, I mean, obviously, um, it's, hist- I mean, just the history there is, has, have t- you know, mm-hmm. has, is very complex and, um but I'm just very, very interested in that, especially. Right. So there's there's certain things that's like, oh, this is a book on like Japanese culture, Japanese history. And it's like, nah, well, that's not really for, that's not a story for me, really. Um, mm. So that's a thing that really links, even cosplay. I mean, cosplay, you think, well, cosplay is, you know, um, kind of a Japanese thing. But, it, you know, what we would consider as like actual cosplay, I mean, that started in the U.S. And then Japan... Mm. Japan, like what Japan did was, was, uh, uh, just perfected it and just, you know, uh, uh, really made it popular all over the world mm-hmm. and created a great word for it that we didn't have. So, right. Well, that's, I, this is a, the answer, these are the answers I never expected to hear. It's interesting. That totally makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, um, so let's get into, uh, some of your books and, okay. uh, Let's see. So, uh, you uh, wrote uh, Japanese tattoo uh, history, culture, design in 2016. So, why did you write a book about Japanese tattoos? So, uh, I I've always been really interested in art uh, ever since I was a small child. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to draw and stuff like that, but uh, more from like appreciating art. Um, uh, so. I think maybe when I was in third grade, third grade or fourth grade, around then, there were, the teacher told all the students, like, okay, everybody do a, a, a report on a famous person, but dress up like that person. So other kids did, you know, famous athletes or, you know, Benjamin Franklin or whoever. Uh, I did Van Gogh because I really thought Van Gogh was cool. <laughs> and so I, I came to school... Uh, I guess wearing a what I thought was like a painter shirt, so I think it was like a white button-up shirt that was kind of flowing, uh, and then I uh, wrapped a bandage around my head and had like fake blood where my ear <laughs> ear ear had been, and everyone really liked that present state you know presentation because somebody gets up and they have like a bloody <laughs> bandage on the side of their head and you, you immediately have everyone's attention. So uh, as a kid, like whenever my parents would take me on vacation, they'd always say, "Oh, we're going to go to the art museum." So. Um, I just really, really liked art growing up. And so I studied, that's what I ended up uh, majoring in, <coughs> in university. And um, so I've always just really appreciated art. And so tattoos, I was fascinated from them formally, just the, you know, the iconography, what they meant, the history and stuff like that. And I had um, met up with a tattooer who's based in Osaka, his name is Hori Binney. And I thought, oh, this, this guy, you know, I really like this guy. And um, this would be a fun book to do. And um, it, it was great. And uh, the, the kind of the question that I had when, when I started that project, I, I was wondering, you know, Japanese tattoos are so amazing and they have this um, uh, rich iconography and design. Why has there traditionally been uh, uh, ill feelings towards this art in Japan? And then within that context, why do people still get them done? And I'm not just talking about like people who are like gangsters. I mean, I'm just talking about like regular people uh, getting tattoos. And I was so fascinated because uh, American or Western tattoos are designed to show. You know, you get a tattoo and then you show people. You want people to see it. Uh, traditional Japanese tattooing is do- designed to be concealed. And it's for the for the wearer. It's very personal. And that kind of comparison and that kind of dynamic I thought was utterly fascinating. And uh, that's why, um, you know, I was really interested and doing a book on it. I don't have any mm-hmm. tattoos. Um, my uh, co-author, Hori Benny, has enough tattoos for the both of us. He has enough tattoos for all three of us. Um, so uh, I can't speak uh, in depth about, you know, the degree of pa- pain that one feels when you get, like, your inner thigh tattooed. 
Um, mm. But he can, and he can, right. and he can talk uh, at length about doing it because he's a professional tattooer. So um, mm. it was an interesting, interesting topic. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, uh, for listeners who are not familiar with Japanese uh, hot spring onsen, mm-hmm. you can't have a tattoo. If you have a tattoo. People look at you as like, you're a gangster. Right. And you're not even, literally, you're not allowed to go to the public onsen. <laughs> so I'm curious, who's getting tattoos then in Japan, like, if you're not a gangster? Oh, all sorts. I mean, I interviewed all sorts of people, you know. Um, some uh, There was uh, one, one person that uh, we interviewed who works in the, the medical profession. And mm-hmm. she got her whole, you know, back done and she got, you know, a deity on her back that she thought would protect her patients. So <laughs> she she got it for religious meanings and she thought by doing that then she would be able to cuz there's a lot of like t- talisman kind of a lot of people a lot of people get tattoos to protect their bodies and stuff. There's a long history of that in Japan. And so she got it for that and if you saw her you would never think that you know she did that and then by that same token if her employer saw her saw that or you know if her her patient saw that it might cause uh her trouble you know it might cause problems so um the the interesting thing is that uh you know after the war um you know as as People in Japan started getting, you know, uh, refrigerators and modern appliances and moving into apartments with uh, baths in in them and showers in them. They started they stopped going to the public bath. And before that, you know, you would go to the public bath and you'd see all your neighbors naked, you know, in the bath. But then you would know like, hey, that guy's the butcher and he's a nice guy, and wow, he's got a lot of tattoos, but he's a nice guy. And so there was a certain, maybe a, a slightly more tolerance at that time, because people were able to judge people as people, and they'd say like, oh, okay, that kind of person exists. But once that stopped happening, um, people in Japan, I think, really kind of the, the, the anti-tattoo fervor kind of amped up. Because they didn't have these, you know, opportunities to to see tattoos and then to have personal, normal uh, relationships with people that they they knew were tattooed. So because of that, when you then saw a tattoo in Japan, it, it was uh, quite surprising. It was like, wow, there's a tattoo. <laughs> so, so, um, but yeah, I mean, some people like like just regular folks. They're just you know into tattoos, and but when they go to the gym. Uh, they can't shower afterwards, so they have to go home in their, you know, clothes like that and then clean up at home. Or uh, during the summertime, maybe they're they're very conscious that, you know, part of their thigh might reveal tattoos, so they have to wear certain clothes at, you know, certain lengths. Now, not everyone is like this. Some people just will, they, you know, they, 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 you know, I think it, it feels like in the past few years there's been more people... Uh, kind of showing them because of uh, court cases and rulings here about uh, who can do tattoos and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's a really, really interesting subject matter. Mm, right. Okay. So the another interesting subject, <laughs> you also wrote a book about Japanese schoolgirls called Japanese Schoolgirl Confidential, How Teenage Girls Made a Nation Cool. Mm-hmm. And I think the book focuses on the very intriguing and important aspect of Japanese culture because their existence is particularly um, kind of relevant and influential to the whole society. So why did you write the book? So for, for many years, I was uh, covering these kind of like uh, teen, like Japanese teen trends with regards to technology for, for wired, like technology that basically like cell phones that schoolgirls in Japan were using. So I had this like bat- backlog of experience or whatever, uh, which is kind of a very niche uh, thing to have uh, uh, experience in. But the Japanese publisher contacted me and they're interested in doing a book. Um, And so I I really wanted to um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, focus on certain things that I thought 
were interesting uh, that I didn't really know about. You know, like, for example, the, the history of the uniform. You know, why why kids in Japan uh, wear kind of the uniforms that they do, how they developed. And so that was very, very interesting because a lot of these uh, companies in like, um, um, uh, you know, in certain parts of Japan that were making socks for kimono, they actually uh, ultimately switched over to making school uniforms. And the reason why they were able to do that was, A, you know, people were wearing, uh, you know, fewer and fewer traditional articles of clothing in Japan. So there wasn't a huge market for those socks for kimono anymore. Uh, but because of the, the way that those socks are designed, they have to be very, very strong. So they have to be this very, very durable um, um, uh, uh, fabric that can last a long time. And so they were able to make the leap quite easily then to making school uniforms because school uniforms need to be, uh, uh, you know, they, they can't fall apart because kids wear them and, you know, kids like to put their clothes through, through hell and back. So um, stuff like that was just very, very interesting to me. It's kind of a, you know, people don't really think about it. It's just kind of a given. Um, and then I was also able to, to interview and write uh, uh, people in subject matters that I have a great deal of interest in. So, for example, movies. I was able to uh, interview uh, Kuriaki, uh, or, uh, Chiaki Kuriyama, and um, who started in Kill Bill as, as Gogo, and then she was in Battle Royale. And so there's that connection there with Fukusaku and like all these kind of things that were tangent, like art. You know, I ended up going to um, some really wonderful art studios and interviewing artists. So all these things that I was kind of tangentially related or interested in had this connection to like, you know, schoolgirl culture and stuff like that. And so it was interesting to do a book on that. Uh, the surprising thing about that book, though, is some of the people that I interviewed at that time weren't like very well known, but ended up becoming like some of the most famous people in the country, which was incredibly bizarre later. Um, um, but uh, yeah, it was very interesting. Like um, one thing that was surprising and now that I look back on it, it seems almost kind of a, uh, um, you know, foretelling the world in which we live. Is so uh, uh, sticker pictures become very popular during the 1990s. I'm sure uh, you remember everyone who went to Japan probably from you know the mid 90s even till now. They've seen sticker picture machines. Um, but the thing that was so interesting is that kids in the 90s uh, started having these notebooks, and they started filling them with sticker pictures. And they'd take pictures with their friends and then put them in there. And then they'd take pictures with, like, people who were kind of their friends and, like, even, like, kind of random people. And they started just amassing these notebooks filled with sticker pictures. And then they'd make notes and draw little pictures on them and, you know, write messages in each other's notebooks. Well, this is like an analog Facebook. I mean, minus the, you know, the disinformation and the fake news, you know. Um mm. And so seeing these kind of things was just very, very interesting. It was an interesting period in Japan, especially where you had, they were coming, the, the bubble had exploded, but there still were a lot of technology, a lot of companies kind of doing interesting and adventurous stuff with technology. Um, so it was just a very interesting topic to write about. Mm, right. So why do you think uh, schoolgirls are so visibly um, there in Japan and kind of influential in your opinion? I think, um, well, I mean, one thing is that, you know, if, if we're talking about schoolgirls, we're talking about the women of Japan, right? You know, either they're, the, they're, these are, you know, little kids who are going to grow up and be schoolgirls or, you know, uh, you know, women who were formerly schoolgirls, right? So I, I think a lot of it just uh, shows a lot of the kind of, uh, 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 you know, influence uh, that, that women have, have had in Japan over, over popular culture. There's that. Um, but I think that the, the, the thing that, uh, makes them so ubiquitous in, uh, you know, movies and TV and even in video games and stuff is that they kind of appeal to a, a wider segment of the Japanese population, I'd say than like school boys would, uh, you know, and this is, this is, this is what's been kind of explained to me 
it, it, and by that I mean, um, you know, little kids can kind of look up to them as like an older sister type and they're less threatening than maybe like a big brother type. Um, and then obviously they appeal to kids their own age. And then I think women kind of look back at them maybe with a certain degree of nostalgia. Uh, and then men as well, maybe like when they were, uh, in school or maybe they think of their own kids, uh, uh, women as well. So they, they just, it always seems like in Japan, if they don't have, if a company doesn't have like a, uh, a famous spokesperson or a character or something like that, they'll just kind of have a schoolgirl sell a product, you know, and it might be like uh, health insurance or something, all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, so that's like a little window, but the whole world is behind it when you look at schoolgirls. So, mm-hmm. okay, so uh, let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into Japanese whiskey. That is one of the hottest beverages in the global market. So please stay with us. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based consumers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less sad saturated fat and it's more sustainable just egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions most importantly it's delicious for our listeners who operate a food service establishment you can get a sample for free head to ju.st slash hrn that's ju.st slash hrn Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble. Great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres calls Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, It's so good, I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st slash hrn. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Katema, and my guest today is Brian Ashcraft, who is a senior writer for the video gaming site Kotaku and a columnist for the Japan Times. And also, he's the author of the, the six fascinating books. So, now let's talk about your book on whiskey. You published Japanese Whiskey, the,、uh, the Ultimate Guide to the World's Most Desirable Spirit with Tasting Notes from Japan's Leading Whiskey Blogger in 2018. So,、uh, for those of our listeners who enjoy drinking alcohol, Japanese whiskey is definitely one of the hottest categories in the market right now. So,、um, could you tell us why Japanese whiskey is so unique and special among other global whiskey categories? You know, the, the, the fascinating thing about Japanese whiskey so, Japanese, like proper Japanese whiskey,、uh, starts from, you know, 1923, 1924,、um, starts being made from around them. Uh, Yamazaki, the first proper Japanese whiskey distillery, was、uh, established in、uh, 1923. So,、um, but for most of Japanese whiskey's history, it was just completely ignored by the outside world. I mean, no, like, you know,、uh, and it wasn't for a lack of trying. I mean, Japanese uh, uh, whiskey companies did try to、uh, entice、uh, people from、uh, around the globe. To、uh, drink their whiskey. I mean, for years in New York and、uh, Times Square,、uh, there was a sundry whiskey ad,、uh, you know, in Times Square. And、uh, just for a long time, it just, you know,、uh, you'd see from maybe the 1950s, you'd see a, the occasional article here and there. People would say, ah, Japanese whiskey isn't, you know, imitation scotch, it's better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.、Um, but Until 
fairly recently just wasn't on people's radar. And um, because of the, obviously, uh, a lot of the international competitions that, that it's uh, Japanese whiskey has been winning and um, for, for uh, you know, due to a lot of the, the, the high praise it's garnered uh, from uh, from uh, you know people within the whiskey world, it's really become incredibly popular. Well, why is it popular? You know, why do people like it? And I think that uh, one of the big reasons is that um, it, it's generally very very balanced. It's a very balanced whiskey. Uh, it's often incredibly uh, approachable. Uh, I think within the whiskey s- segment, and um, you know, I think that 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 those kind of um, I mean, that, that's kind of, I think one of the reasons why, I mean, it, it tastes good. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not like, it's not super insightful to say that, but it's true. I mean, it's good. It's right. good. It's good. But, uh, I think that what makes it so interesting though, is, uh, you know, um, like, you know, we're talking, we're talking earlier about food and you asked me at the beginning of this, like, well, what food did you eat, you know, uh, growing up, you know, where are you from? And the reason why I think that that's such a good question is, uh, and this is, um, I'll get back to whiskey in a minute. I'll, this is going to kind of be a roundabout way of, of, of getting there, but I'll get, I'll get there in a second. Um, <laughs> uh, so like, uh, my, my middle son, uh, he, I remember once we were in Texas and he was eating, uh, frosted flakes and he said, Hey dad, these, these frosted flakes taste different. And I was like, what do you mean? What were you talking about? Like frosted flakes or frosted, frosted flakes? And so I had the American frosted flakes and I was like, wow, they do taste different. And that's not because they're using radically different uh, machines or, you know, or ingredients, uh, but they're using different machines to make them. They're making them a different place. You know, kind of some of there's going to be slight nuances and and how it's produced and it's going to result result in a different product. And uh, we see that with whiskey, you know, so Japanese whiskey is made by Japanese people. And so you're going to get the sensibility that is in Japanese food, but it's not the same. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just like the people who invented Japanese food are making whiskey. So it's going to taste different, right? Their their default uh, baseline of flavors are different. So when I think of my you know, default baseline of flavors, I, all my f- food of memory, uh, except I said, you know, before like miso soup that I would say that's a food of memory for me, but most of them, it's going to be like Frito pie and like these like Tex-Mex and all this kind of stuff that I ate growing up. And then for my son, his kind of food, uh, you know, food of memory is going to be stuff that he grew up eating in Japan. And that mm-hmm. just, that just, that just influences the, the final product and you don't, and it's not like some clever design and they don't, it's not like somebody has a whiteboard out with like, you know, they're mapping all this out in, uh, in, in an in-depth way. It just naturally happens. And, um, I think that that's one of the things it's it, that there's that the sensibility, you know, Japanese food is popular as well. It's delicious. And, you know, it, it's, it has a, a wonderful kind of a sweet kind of savoriness to it. And it's, it's tend to be, it tends to be, you know, balanced. Obviously there are exceptions to it. Um, but you, that just kind of comes across in Japanese whiskey. That being said, I don't think Japanese whiskey goes very well with Japanese food. And, uh, you know, there's been ad campaigns since like, you know, like the, at least the seventies where, you know, they've tried, domestically within Japan where they tried to really, um, uh, you know, push, uh, uh, you know, Japanese whiskey, uh, with Japanese food. I was watching an Ozu movie the other night, uh, you know, an autumn afternoon. And there's a scene in that where, uh, there's a bunch of scenes in that where people are drinking, but there's one scene where they're eating Japanese food and they have a bottle of Suntory old, uh, on, on the, on the, the counter. It looks like product placement. But yeah, I know. I saw a lot of <laughs> Suntory whiskeys in those movies. So yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. but it but that that particular whiskey would have destroyed, would have just overpowered any of the food that they were eating. So that's why they weren't even drinking it during that scene. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's mm. just it's 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 just very very interesting. But yet that same kind of sensibility does come through. Right. Interesting. And also, I think uh, you know because Japanese people tend to be obsessed with 
everything. <laughs> yes. And, uh, so it's like, you know, if you have perfect whiskey, why do you have to mess it with food? That kind of mindset, probably. Yeah. But, but yeah. I mean, also because the, the, the drinks that they already have here, including, you know, we'll shoehorn in beer, already go really well with food. And so, mm. and so I always think of what Japan does really, really well is the, the, the they're, you know, the country is very good about thinking about what it doesn't have and then kind of filling that void. And if that mm. void is already filled, then maybe they don't, it's not like uh, Japan passively accepts everything from the outside world. They don't, you know, uh, so there's certain products or certain companies that have long tried to become popular in Japan and Japan probably just feels like, hey, you know, we, we don't need this. We, ha we already have a version of this that kind of scratches that itch. But for whiskey, I mean, you have this like really, uh, you know, high, uh, uh, high, this alcoholic drink, you know, high, like, you know, high proof or whatever. There's alcoholic drink with, a, you know, strong, a strong alcoholic drink um, that is really good for after dinner, you know. And and whiskey has kind of kind of come in and like kind of fill, filled that void. Now they have taken it like you know if they uh, if, if Japanese whiskey is served as a highball because you're just you're just uh, adding so much carbonated soda there, uh, then it does work well with food, uh, and uh, it works brilliantly with a lot of kind of the you know the the food especially that Osaka is famous for these kind of savory soul food and stuff like that with much broader flavors and uh then you can drink really cheap uh japanese whiskey and just drown it in soda and throw some ice in there and it it um uh it, you know it does a really really good job because uh that sort of whiskey doesn't actually need a lot of nuance because the food itself mm. doesn't have a huge amount of nuance to be honest um right. but but some of the more like kind of delicate stuff you know we have Sake, we have shochu. They do a better job, and even beer, they do a better job of kind of supporting the, the meal uh, than whiskey does. Mm. At least in my opinion. <laughs> so. Right. Okay. Um, well, the speaking of this Japanese-ness, uh, mm -hmm. so last month in February 2021, the Japanese Spirits and Liqueur Makers Association announced new standard that mm -hmm. defines finally defines Japanese whiskey. So. First of all, why did the association introduce the standard now? That's a good question. Um, I think that I, I've been heard, I've been hearing for for a while that 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 this some sort of standards need to be created or something was coming, and um, I feel like that that with the explosive popularity of Japanese whiskey. We've seen products come to market which either were suspect, you know, they were completely imported um, spirit that was being passed off as Japanese. Um, or we've seen stuff that isn't traditionally considered uh, Japanese whiskey sold internationally as a type of Japanese whiskey. So we saw this uh, kind of confluence of both of these. Uh, but personally, what I think um, has happened was that there was concern within the industry that if there weren't a certain degree of standards and then people had uh, what they thought was Japanese whiskey and it wasn't good, that they might think like, oh, well, this is what Japanese whiskey is. And um, I think there was concern about that, kind of protecting the image of Japanese whiskey. Mm. Um, so I think that that's one of the reasons, I mean, another thing is like, like, um, 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 it kind of reminds me, like, I kind of feel like the association is trying to prevent, uh, not prevent, but like, uh, cut any scandals off at the pass, you know, like any kind of, kind of thinking, oh, there could be scandals over this that people could find out that this whiskey that says Japanese whiskey on it isn't actually Japanese whiskey. And then that could be a scandal. And if you think about like what happened to the sake industry in like the, you know, the seventies and the eighties where you had these big sake companies, uh, that were buy that were having smaller breweries, uh, brew sake. And then they were just rebought, they were bottling it and then selling it as their own. And like the headaches that that scandal caused, I think maybe there were, 
there were thoughts that like, well, you know, we don't want scandals within our industry where people are, are saying that it's Japanese whiskey, but then, you know, you find out that it's completely scotch uh, mm. or something like that. So I think that that's, that's, that's why uh, it's, it's a combination of those events uh, or those, or those reasons uh, that that's why these regulations have been created now. Now these, these regulations aren't law. Uh, you have to be a member of the association and the, you know, there's still going to be people screwing around I bet, and stuff like that. Um, so I don't think we're out of the woods on that. It's not a law. Um, right. But yeah, that's like a suggested standards, right? right? So, but so there was a definition of Japanese whiskey by the new standards, and uh, what is not Japanese whiskey by the new standards? So yeah, I mean the the the, the thing that I was kind of happy to I'll just say like the stuff that I was kind of happy to see to be honest is that they said you know the these. Um, you know, they're, they're saying that like, okay. So I, there's parts of, I'll say there's parts of the regulations that I think are really good. And then there's parts of it that I think actually kind of, uh, um, are less so. So I'll, I'll just, just run through the regulations really quick. Uh, just so everybody here is working kind of from, from, uh, is everybody here is on the same page. So they're saying that Japanese whiskey, is going to be made from uh, raw ingredients that must be limited to malted grains or other cereal grains and water extracted in Japan. It said malted grains must always be used. Uh, so that's what they're saying for raw ingredients. Now, this means that rice can't be used. Uh, or because uh, 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 they're, they're saying like a cereal grain. So I guess that's they're saying that, you know, they're talking about like traditional whiskey grains. Uh, um, and then saying like malted grains, uh, you know, they can't use koji. Um, and so they, that's been something that you've been seeing on a lot of, uh, uh, rice whiskey being sold outside of Japan. And it's often, so, you know, shochu that's maybe been aged too long and it's too dark and they can't sell the shochu in Japan. So they export it and they sell it as rice whiskey, uh, you know, internationally, there is not a tradition of drinking rice whiskey in Japan. Uh, that just doesn't, it doesn't exist. They, people drink shochu. It's its own thing. Um, so they're saying here that you can't even use uh, koji as, as part of the process that you need to use mal, uh, malted grain. And um, I think that that's an interesting choice uh, in, in that, um, you know, Suntory and Nika and all these Japanese whiskey companies, they've been well aware of koji. It's not like, you know, for for the nearly 100 years that whiskey has been properly made in Japan, uh, these, these the, the, the pioneers of Japanese whiskey were well aware of koji. And there was a conscious decision to to use malted grain and to to use, you know, malted grains and cereal grains uh, as part of the process. And I think that because of that, because of that history there, and because of these conscious decisions that were made, that for something to be considered Japanese whiskey, that actually, I think, is uh, something that should be protected and something that should be spelled out. Now, I think that you could have like koji whiskey, and that could be its own category, but that would be different from this definition of Japanese whiskey. Um mm. It's it would be its own thing, you know, and that, that's fine. And I think that if somebody, you know, if 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 distilleries wanted to do that, great, they should do it because I think that uh, there's a lot of delicious drinks that could be had. But if we're talking about, um, you know, Japanese whiskey, I mean, uh, Masataka Taketsuru, his family was in the you know the sake business. He was well aware of. Koji, he knew exactly right. so, what it was. Right, so Taketsu, he's a uh, uh, people's thing. Without him, there's no Japanese whiskey existed. He was kind of founders uh, working with, uh, you know, the founder of Santori Whiskey's, uh, you know, the blending technique. So, right, but, you know, the the, the whole thing is that, for example, uh, mm -hmm. we had a Chris Odi, of, mm -hmm. who's the importer of uh, Fukano whiskey. So Fukano mm -hmm. whiskey um, is a aged shochu. 
right. and sold as whiskey under American regulations.、Mm-hmm. But the problem is that Fukano whiskey was colored because it was of the aging.、Right. So there's no way to sell. So the government、uh-huh. categorized it as not saleable as shochu. Right. And then it could have been just wasted. It's amazing, delicious. Beverage. Right. So that's kind of like a double standards, you know. Well, in, in, <laughs> I mean, I, in, and you know what? I think like that would be that own, that would be a different category. We'd say that that's、right. like a, a koji whiskey. But the problem is that it's been kind of passed off as Japanese whiskey. And,、mm. and this doesn't exist in the history of Japanese whiskey. There have been, there, now,、uh, so when Taketsuru was in Scotland,、uh, somebody there asked him, somebody in the Scottish, you know, Scotch whiskey business asked him, To about,、um, about making koji and then using that instead of malting. And so he actually had koji spores sent out、uh, to、mm-hmm. Scotland to, to try and to try the process. And it wasn't successful. And that probably was more due to、uh, the conditions there or、uh, maybe even Takatsuru's ability to、uh, you know, make koji, to be honest.、Um, right. So, so There, that history does exist, but that it never you know, wasn't really going into production at these companies. These companies were doing you know, malted barley, and there was a long history of that. And then there was a lot of pride for a long time for using domestic、uh, malted barley. And then that, you know, a number of years ago, then that switched. And you know, they, they use, for the most part, there are exceptions, but you know, the, the big companies are using. Predominantly um, uh, imported barley.、Um, but it's a different history. you know? So if you're, if you're saying, like, well, there's this company and they, 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 just, you know, they distilled this and then they aged it and it's too dark to sell and it's delicious, that has nothing to do with Japanese whiskey. And so、mm. when that's sold、uh, in the US as, a, a, as like a Japanese rice whiskey, Then people think, like, ah, so they make rice whiskey in Japan. It's like, no, they, they don't. They, they make, you know,、uh, they, they, they're working from,、uh, you know, in the Scotch, kind of more in the Scotch style.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, it kind of confuses things.、Right. And, and then if, but if, you know,、uh, you know, Fukano said, like, well, this is a koji whiskey, great. I think that would be great. And that would be clear. You know,、uh, some of the other things in the, the regulations is they're saying that sacrification, fermentation, distillation must be carried out, distilled in Japan. So, wh- what has also been happening in the past few years is that companies here were just import scotch, put it in wood, they'd age it, and they say, oh, it's aged in Japan and it, or it's blended in Japan.、Um, and I think that you need, to, I mean, now the reg- regulations are different. So,、uh, but for me, Until I saw these regulations, I'd always felt like, well, you need to like distill at least part of the whiskey here in Japan. And then if you're working, like, let's say, in a small or medium sized distillery and you can't get、uh, grain whiskey because your、uh, distillery doesn't have、uh, the equipment or your company doesn't have enough money to install all the equipment because it can be obviously very expensive and、uh, it's harder to get, you know, maybe grain spirit within Japan, I could see why people would import that. And then、uh, use that in a blend. It just, I mean, it makes sense because it's, it's harder.、Uh, you know, the Japanese whiskey industry traditionally has not been uh, like uh, you know, the Scotch whiskey industry in, in that people aren't really trading, trading spirit. And that's why Suntory has to do everything in house. That's why you know, Nika's、uh, been doing everything in house.、Um, so that's changed though under these、yeah. regulations. Mm. So, do you think uh, uh, something's going to happen for the I, industry? I do. I mean, I think, like,、um, uh, I, I, you know, like,、uh, as soon as these regulations hit,、uh, Nika went to their official website and then just went through all the product and said, like,、uh, this whiskey meets the standards、uh, to be called Japanese whiskey, or this mis-、uh, whiskey does not. And they went through and labeled it very, very clearly. And it was a lot of transparency. And、um, the, the Japanese, the whiskey business in general,、uh, has, has traditionally not been very transparent. The Japanese whiskey、uh, business, especially,、uh, you know, hasn't been transparent.、Um, and、uh, especially compared to like sake, sake is f- far more as an industry, far more transparent. But 
this kind of by having these regulations, um, you know, at least Nika has gone through and is, is trying to be more transparent. And, you know, there were certain whiskeys in there. People always kind of thought like, ah, I'm sure this has like Ben Nevis in it, you know? Well, Nika owns Ben, ben Nevis. And so part of me feels like, well, that's okay, you know, because they own it, I, I guess. And if they're going to use a part of it, it's not like they're bringing in from another company. Um, and so that always kind of uh, made sense to me uh, to a degree. Uh, because if you look at like, for example, like car production, sometimes a car, you know, an Italian car might have a, a Japanese transmission in it. So that's how I always kind of viewed that. Maybe they were just sourcing parts, uh, certain key whiskeys from within their own company, but those distillers are located abroad. Um, mm. but, uh, I think that we might get more transparency. Maybe we won't. Um, you know, I think that certain, you know, we certain really famous kind of iconic uh japanese i'll say blends uh maybe not the premium ones that we've seen or the premium single malts you know if 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 the companies have to go through and label it then that whiskey might not be japanese you know um mm. so i think that in many ways uh if you look at kind of the history of japanese whiskey japanese uh, whiskey has traditionally been very flexible it's it's been a lot more nimble than Scotch because Scotch has a lot stricter regulations, and now they're kind of penciling in re- regulations and maybe uh, in, in an effort to protect the industry, uh, maybe uh, kind of reducing some of that flexibility. But uh, mm. one thing that's interesting about it is that for aging, they are saying that you know the distilled product must be poured into wooden casks. They don't specify oak which I think is very, very interesting because there's been a history in Japan of using uh, woods besides oak, not just, you know, American white oak or European oak or Mizunara, you know, Japanese oak, but also using like, like sugi, like Japanese cedar. And more recently you see people kind of experimenting with things like, like cherry blossom wood and other types of wood that can really impact flavor because flavor is going to be, you know, 70% of flavor or so is going to be from the cask itself. So casks are hugely important. So uh, I, that was one of the things that I liked about it is that they went through and, you know, they're trying to, to really put this stuff uh, into writing, really trying mm. to define it, but they're still kind of giving themselves some breathing room. Um, right. So, yeah, it's, it's the – like voluntary standards. So right. let's see what happens. Yeah, I know, right. I know, I know. There's still going to be like squirrely people doing squirrely stuff. <laughs> That's not going to stop. That's not going right. to stop. That's not going to stop. But uh, yeah. I think it was a good good step. Mm, okay. So uh, so we're kind of running out of time. So, um, so Sorry. <laughs> um, no, no, no. It's just that, well, you, you should come back. We have to discuss more about sake and many other stuff. So, mm-hmm. so uh, what are you working on right now? Right now, I am working on making it through 2021. And last year, <laughs> I was working on getting through 2020. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always like researching stuff. There's always stuff that I'm interested in. Um, you know, I'm always, uh, you know, looking at, different topics, stuff that I want to, you know, learn more and more about. And uh, that's pretty much what I'm doing at the moment. Mm. Well, I can't wait to find how <laughs> how many other interesting, very intriguing, uh, you know, book titles I can find from your um, profile uh, list. So, yeah, please do keep me posted. And I really want you to come back and talk more about everything you observed in Japan. Oh, yeah, so where can we find your updates online and social media? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Brian underscore Ashcraft. I'm also on Instagram, uh, but I'm more often on Twitter, it seems. So uh, please uh, come by and say hello. All right. All right. So thank you so much, Brian. And uh, yeah, it was great. And uh, thank you for posting up so late again. Oh, sure. No problem. It was a delight uh, talking to you. Thank you. 
Thank you. So, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at Japanese at Heritage Radio Network.org or akikokatema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at Heritage Radio Network.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amanda Wong, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.